Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Barry, it is a pleasure to have you on the show. You've been on a few times in the past, and we've kind of focused around the same topic, much like the one we're going to be discussing today, and it's kind of Watergate. Obviously, it's not something you can cover in one episode unless you had 12 hours, and I'm more than happy to do that with you. But we've kind of picked it apart piece by piece. Obviously, some relation to the Kennedy assassination we talked about on the beginning. But I wanted to get a summarization from you of Watergate and then what your stance on it is based on what the official narrative is. That is a great word that you just chose, narrative, because that's what it's about. Uh, there was a narrative that emerged almost immediately. Just for uh, recapping purposes, on June 17th, 1972, five burglars were arrested at the DNC headquarters in Washington. And they were taken into custody. And the evidence on their persons included $2,300 in fresh paper, sequentially serial numbered $100 bills, which is impossible. The, the average person can't get sequentially serial numbered $100 bills in uh, fresh paper, but they did. They had intelligence grade surveillance equipment like cameras and bugs. One of them had a room key to a Howard Johnson hotel across the street. When they went, investigated that room across the street, there were two more men that were arrested, G. Gordon Liddy and E. Howard Hunt. Uh, the command center at the Howard Johnson Hotel had an additional $4,200 in fresh paper, sequentially serial numbered $100 bills, and a bunch more intelligence-grade surveillance equipment. And uh, so immediately, uh, the source of the, the that evidence alone pointed directly at two places. Uh, first place was was obviously Richard Nixon's committee to reelect the president because uh, some of the people arrested, for example, E. Howard Hunt was employed by Creep. G. Gordon Liddy was employed by Creep. Uh, a couple of the other, a couple of the burglars were employed by Creep. Uh, e. There was a little notebook. One of the burglars had a little notebook and in that notebook was a phone number, a White House phone number to E. Howard Hunt. So immediately, the White House is implicated, okay? And then the source of the surveillance equipment turns out to be all CIA. All that equipment came from the CIA. So the next morning at the arraignment, the judge is asking them, the burglars, what are your occupations? And four of the five burglars were Cuban and they were from Miami and they kept saying, well, we're Cuban freedom fighters. And the judge kept pressing, well, what, what do you do for a living? What do you do to make money? Then they said they were retired and they just kept kind of dancing around the subject. And eventually he got the truth out of them and they sort of mumbled under their breath that they all worked for the CIA. And of course, E. Howard Hunt is standing there and he's part of this uh, group's being arraigned and everybody knows this isn't, this isn't uh, you know, a secret, but he worked for the White House. And of course, his background was CIA. All the surveillance equipment was on loan from the CIA. And so we have uh, immediately connections to the White House and to the CIA. But uh, Bob Woodward, the Washington Post reporter, was actually in the courtroom that morning. And he's writing all this down. And he heard that exchange between the judge and the defendants. And so he and his partner, Carl Bernstein, began making phone calls immediately to the CIA. That's their first, that's the, that's the first uh, direction that they had. And then they, they get intercepted by a source 
this is a uh, deep background source that Bob Woodward had over the years, and he nicknamed him Deep Throat, which is kind of interesting. Allegedly, Mark felt, but I don't think it was just one guy. Yeah, you're right. I think it's a, comp a compilation of two men. I think Mark Felt was involved, but I think Alexander Haig uh, was the, uh, you know, he he was involved in it as well. He was internally at the White House, and if you understand Alexander Haig and his lust for power, his desire to, his willingness to, to, rat people out, uh, I think it was those two, and he. I think Bob Woodward made him into one person, but I know Mark felt was involved in it because some of the information could have only come from the FBI. And that's where he was. He was the number two at the FBI, but some of the information was internal within the white house could only come from inside. So that's why I believe it was two. But anyway, uh, as far as uh, uh, the information that Bob Woodward started getting from deep throat was all geared towards the white house and away from the CIA. And Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein went in that direction. And Watergate became a Nixon scandal, and the CIA ends up completely unscathed in this whole deal. No one. I, you know, in all the college classes I ever took, the books I've read, very few ever mentioned the CIA as, as, as being involved in this caper at all. Uh, and then another thing that never gets mentioned uh, is the connection between Watergate and the JFK assassination. You, you almost never hear that. And uh, so, and, and then the last thing that never gets mentioned is is the, the uh, consistency of why presidents were removed, Kennedy and Nixon. There are some commonalities there, and they were removed for, for reasons that had to do with Cold War ideology. And there were people that were viewing both Kennedy and Nixon as threats to those Cold War ideologies, and so they were removed. So that's that's some of the, the backstory as far as uh, the narrative. It all it became a Nixon scandal, and he took he took the fall for it. and and a bunch of people in the White House took the fall for it. But really, behind the scenes, the one pulling the strings on this whole thing was the CIA. Before we get into where you kind of stand when it comes to Watergate differences from the official narrative. What are some red flags? Like looking through, I didn't know that they were caught because there was a piece of tape on a door and a janitor had saw it and then removed the tape and then saw it was reapplied. And then you start finding out that like, I mean, there were CIA people on that in the Watergate plumbers. So poor Meyer. So, I mean, you get to a point where you go, I mean, did they willingly try and get caught on purpose because you have cia tactics yet they couldn't bug a office properly they had to go back into i think it's larry o'brien's office and rebug it again because they couldn't they didn't do it right the first time where i start going these i mean this just shows that our government's incompetent but I, there's no way in hell they're that incompetent well no they're not incompetent this was all intentional uh when when they made the decision that nixon was a target and that he had to go the CIA, and and I'll 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 get into it a little bit later about who was involved. I'll give you names, but uh, they they begin breaking. Don't into... rob Reiner me. What are you talking about? Or this JFK <laughs> oh, yeah. podcast? I'll give you guys names. I'm like, oh great. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, the first three break-ins at the water. You know, this was actually the fourth break-in. This wasn't the first break-in at the Watergate, and 
what was going on was in the first three break-ins, the film was being switched. You know, they were they were putting in this bugging devices, but also cameras, and the film was being switched so that the CIA was getting the real evidence that they were seeking, uh, while uh, the plumbers were getting pictures that were fakes. And uh, uh, McCord, who was the bugging specialist, and he's the one that eventually writes the letter to the judge telling bringing the whole thing to light. He he's he planted two sets of bugs at the DNC and the first set was working. It was it was for his employer, the CIA, and it was all about providing the CIA with intel on a prostitution ring that was arranged allegedly arranging liaisons over DNC phone lines. That's what the CIA wanted McCourt. They wanted information on that. The second set of bugs provided the plumbers with no little or no value. And so they decided we got to go back in. These these second set of bugs is not giving us the information that we want. They're, they're malfunctioning. So we got to go back in a fourth time and fix those, fix the, that set of bugs. Well, that was intentional. That was to set up this bungled robbery or burglary, whatever you want to call it. So this is the fourth break-in. And it's a setup by the CIA to entrap Nixon and neutralize the plumbers. The CIA didn't want the White House with this secret investigative unit running around Washington doing God knows what for Nixon. So they they infiltrated it. So they put tape over the door lock. I mean, this is so this is amateur hour, Robbie. They put duct tape over the door lock, shut the door. So now <laughs> the door is is essentially unlockable. The night watchman comes by, pulls the tape off, continues on his rounds, comes back around the second time, and they've put the tape back on the door lock. So now he knows, okay, something's up here. When they do make the arrest, the evidence, and, and remember now, this was, that tape was to get the attention of the authorities, and they were going to be called, and then they were going to be caught with all this evidence on their persons. These are professionals. These are CIA guys. They've been doing this forever. They are the, that's all they do is covert ops. They know better than this. One of them had an address book with Hunt's name and White House number right in the address book. I mean, it says literally WH-202-456-2282. That's the White House phone number. And in parentheses next to it, HH, that's Howard Hunt. And then another one had a check in his pocket from a Mexico City bank. Banco International. Banco International. And that is going to be a huge problem for Nixon. As soon as he finds about, about that check, he about loses his mind because he knows where that about that bank account. That goes back years. Then I, I mentioned earlier someone had a room key in the Howard Johnson Hotel. So that leads the investigators to cross the street to the Howard Johnson Hotel, which turns out to be the command center where Hunt and Liddy are sitting there waiting and they've got all this cash on them, all that sequential serial number cash on the burglars. And then when they get to the command center, they got $4,200 more of it. That's essentially bribe money to pay if you get in trouble. One of them had a walkie-talkie. Well, you... you you understand if you're if you've ever been a little kid and you play with walkie-talkies, you know you got to have two of them. Yeah. <laughs> so if if one of the burglars has a walkie-talkie, you know there's a second one out there somewhere. Well, it turns out it's at the Howard Johnson. You know when they get there, there's the other walkie-talkie. So that's how they knew it was a command center. So that tells 
you asked about red flags. Well, when you start to see these professionals acting in such a uh, amateurish manner, you realize this is intentional. They wanted to be caught, all right? And then when you start to see the, the things that happen in, right after that, for example, James McCord, the guy who was one of the burglars, you know, his employer was the CIA. He was infiltrated. He was put into this plumber's unit to report back to the CIA. And when there was a danger of the CIA might being exposed, uh, no one's talking, but, you know, they do have this CIA equipment and, and, and all these people worked for the CIA. He wrote a letter to the judge. He wrote a letter to the judge and he basically writes, spells out in detail everything that the plumbers have been up to so that the judge would steer the inquiry away from the CIA and towards the White House. They were getting nowhere until James McCord wrote that letter to the judge. The judge was going to have to put people in prison for uh, refusing to talk for, you know, what's that called when you, uh, uh, I can't remember the name for it, when you don't cooperate with the court. Uh, anyway, uh, he, he, they were going to have to put him in jail for that, but they didn't have any information because no one's talking until James McCord talks. And then Deep Throat starts giving Bob Woodward advice to follow the money, i.e. look at that check. That check is really important. That's the information that came from Mark Felt because Mark Felt was bugging his boss. I want to go down to Mexico City. I want to go down to Mexico City and follow this check. And so the White House got alerted that Mark Felt was looking into this check. And that's when Nixon got brought into the loop and realized if he looks into that check, he looks into that bank. If he looks into that bank, he looks into that bank account. If he looks into that bank account, he realizes that has legs that go back to the 60s. And all those covert ops that we were paying these assassination teams trying to kill Castro. And my fingerprints are all over that. So, you know, <laughs> that's when you start hearing Nixon on the White House tapes talking about Bay of Pigs and Bay of Pigs guys. And everybody's like, what's that got to do with Watergate? Well, in their view, they're thinking about Watergate in 72, 73, 74. He's thinking about the covert ops back in the in the, in the 60, 61, 62 era and 63. He knows where that money goes. He knows where that bank account goes. So he was really concerned about that bank account. And that's when Nixon starts getting in over his head and he starts making hush money payments to E. Howard Hunt um, because Hunt was the key. Hunt was the connection. All these other guys, you know, these other guys are basically mechanics. They get hired to do a job, but they don't know the job. They don't know all the reasons for the job. But E. Howard Hunt goes all the way back to the beginning when, uh, when Nixon was putting these covert operators together back in the 60s. And he is the thread. If you start pulling on that thread, E. Howard Hunt starts talking, you got a problem because he can tell the whole story and he can connect all the dots. So Nixon starts through creep. They start paying E. Howard Hunt hush money. And E. Howard Hunt starts taking big sums of money from the creep, from creep and from the White House and divvying it out to all the burglars so that they'll stay quiet. And so E. Howard Hunt was sort of the key here, keeping everybody quiet. And then he just got greedy. E. Howard Hunt and his wife got greedy. They said, we need more money. We need more money. We need more money. And uh, that that uh, leads into a pretty interesting area about his wife. E. Howard Hunt's wife was involved in this 
this uh, extortion, this, you know, this. I was going to ask about her plane crash. Do you put yeah. any weight into that being very suspicious? Oh, yeah, she was, she was very much involved. And she was, in fact, she was on her way to Chicago with a newspaper, a, a news reporter. And she was going to do a press conference and reveal everything about Watergate because the White House had started, stopped paying them the hush money. They cut them off. And so, you know, she was going to Chicago to spill the beans and that plane went down. And when they found her remains, they found what cash she had left. She was going to make a payment to one of the guys who had from Chicago who had supplied a lot of the surveillance equipment. She was going to make a final payment. So she had a bunch of cash on her. And uh, she was sitting next to a reporter from, from Chicago and they were going, they had already made the arrangements. They were going to spill the beans on, uh, on uh, the whole Watergate scandal. And so, and then the plane goes down. Do you think that pushed and, Howard Hughes, or not Howard Hughes, Howard Hunt to do a deathbed confession because they he no. knew that they murdered his wife? Well, what it did is it pushed Howard Hunt to keep silent for his whole for his whole life. It wasn't until he died. I mean, he was a young man when all this happened. And he just, to protect his kids, because he saw what happened to his wife, and he knew, you know, he knew what could happen to him and to his kids. He was more worried about his kids uh, because this was a message to Hunt. We could have killed Hunt. We yeah. could have killed you, but we're going to take out your family. So there goes your wife. Now, if you want your kids to live, and uh, of course, one of his kids is St. John Hunt. And it wasn't until he years, years later, you know, he denied, denied, denied that uh, he had anything to do with with uh he denied all the watergate stuff and then stuff starts coming out about him his involvement in the jfk assassination he denied he denied just always denied and then on his deathbed he does a complete 180 and he says well actually i was there uh, i was part of the i was a bench warmer you know which meant i was there to do a job if somebody else couldn't do it i was to fill in i was i was there and uh, and he even drew out for his for his son Saint John a flowchart, which I have a picture of. He 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 had a flowchart with LBJ at the top, calling the orders, calling the shots, and the CIA people underneath, and and the mechanics who were actually doing the shooting. I mean, he he had a flowchart of names. Why <laughs> so, did he put Johnson at the top if it's kind of like a Nixon thing? Because LB no. Uh, he said that LBJ was, you know, when when uh, the assassination happened, LBJ was the vice president. Nixon was out of government at that time. And so the guy who uh, set the whole plot in motion, according to E. Howard Hunt, was LBJ. His part to play in it was to get Nick, uh, get uh, Kennedy down to Dallas, down to Texas. And then secondly, to, to run the cover up because, you know, he would be the president now. And so... The first thing they would do is get all the evidence and bring it back to Washington and make it federal instead of state. The second thing they would do is rig the autopsy. If you're the president, you can do this. The third thing you would do is appoint all the members to the Warren Commission and and you and your buddy, J. Edgar Hoover, uh, will make sure that uh, any evidence that arrives at the uh, Warren Commission is evidence that points to the patsy and of course to protect the cia you'll put alan dulles on the warren commission and that again steers anything away from the cia and 
poor, poor Oswald, we'll start with a conclusion. We'll make sure any evidence that ex is exculpatory, it might clear him, gets a, gets left out. We'll just include the incriminating evidence and, and, and it'll be an open and shut case, which if you think about it, if, it, if it's the crime of the century for it to come out with a report in 64, when the assassination happened at the end of 63, that's a pretty fast investigation for the government, you know, that, uh, that's because they already had their conclusion. <laughs> they didn't have to do any investigating. They already had their conclusion. So as far as your question about Nixon, you know, it's not Nixon knows. And it's one of the reasons why Nixon was at that famous meeting at, at uh, Clint Murchison's estate. The night before JFK was assassinated, you look at the who's who list, who was at that meeting. LBJ was there. J. Edgar Hoover was there. Richard Nixon was there. Richard Nixon was in Dallas that weekend. And uh, LBJ had a private conversation with Richard Nixon. And so I've always believed that Nixon knew. Uh, I mean, he even admitted it to Roger Stone. Roger Stone asked him, he says, who killed Kennedy? And Nixon was one of these buttoned up guys who would never really spill the beans on people he would know but if you got him in the evening according to roger stone in the evening times he would always have a cocktail and that was the time to talk to richard nixon because he would loosen up a little bit and he finally told roger stone he says well uh lbj Lyndon, and i both wanted to be president the difference was i wasn't willing to kill for it so you know he knew lbj had or had was behind this and he knew that uh uh, the LBJ was the, the, the guy at the top, kind of like E. Howard Hunt. But what he also knew that nobody else knew was that the guys who did the shooting, the guys who were the assassins and the mechanics on the ground were his guys from the S force. Okay. And so when Watergate burglars get arrested and four of them are Cubans and he looks at the names and he realizes those are the same guys. And then one of them gets arrested with a check in his pocket, and that's the same bank account. He realizes, okay, if 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 an honest investigation looks at who these people are and what that bank account means, it's not going to stop with this Watergate burglar. It's going to go all the way back to 60 when we put together the S-Force, and these were my guys, and that was my bank account that we paid them through. And so it's going to implicate him. He didn't order the hit on J on JFK. But his guys he, that were being used to try to kill Castro were used to do the hit. And that implicates him because he put that team together. And that's where Howard Hughes, you mentioned Howard Hughes. That's where Howard Hughes comes in because that was that, if you go all the way back to 59, when he put that S-Force together, he, as vice president, could not do that himself. He had to have outsiders do it. And one of the outsiders that he involved in it was Howard Hughes. Then Howard Hughes recruited Robert Mayhew. Robert Mayhew recruited Johnny Rosselli. Johnny Rosselli recruited Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana got the, recruited Carlos Marcello and Santos, Mar, uh, Santos Traficante. Santos Traficante had the guys down in Miami. They, they recruited them onto this special S-Force, and there you go. But it all started with Nixon, but it channeled through Howard Hughes and all these private individuals so that Nixon would have plausible deniability. I know I just went around the block about five times, but. So why do you think Nixon was targeted? Like if you could really analyze it based on other perspectives from other presidents, 
if you look at maybe backgrounds, everyone always goes for a scandal, something, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's anything, any type of dirt. One thing about Nixon, obviously the money getting funding from, but everybody was getting funding. I mean, Howard Hughes, if you talk about his loan, which loan? Because what I've seen has Nixon publicly apologize about getting a loan received to him, that it was $18,000. I don't know if he's gotten various ones over the time, but he openly made a speech about it talking about that it was because it's hard to finance a campaign with your own money or as a president it's hard to because we have all these and he explained the process of it now you can say that was to lessen the blowback but i don't see any sexual scandals with nixon i don't see i mean besides the money funding thing and then the whole watergate thing which even today doesn't have a conclusive answer as this is why watergate happened there's many different theories and many possibilities of why i do think he was targeted in a sense but when we examine other presidencies and people that are being able to be leveraged for certain points, um, what would you say with Nixon? What was the idea of being targeted? Okay, well, a little bit it, it predates the targeting a little bit. There was a there was a enmity between Nixon and the CIA. He felt like the CIA took a side in the 1960 election. And, you know, in that famous uh, debate between him and Kennedy. Kennedy threw in his face this accusation that the government, you know, talking about President Eisenhower and him as vice president, weren't doing enough to overthrow Castro. And what uh, else could you do? You had 600 something attempts on the guy's life. Yeah, but see, that's all classified. Uh -huh. Operation 40 was ongoing at, as they were speaking, but Nixon can't say anything about it. It's classified. If he says anything, he'll be arrested before he leaves the stage. So Nixon, all he could say was, you know, he felt boxed in. He, he said, well, we're, we're, we're working on it, <laughs> you know, but he didn't have anything specific. And he felt like the CIA had given JFK some inside information about Operation 40. And then uh, JFK had the drop on him because he, he knew that Nixon couldn't fight back in that debate because all the information was classified. They were doing a lot to try to get rid of Castro. He you just couldn't talk about it. The 60 debate, the one that's, um, uh, I think it's, if I'm not mistaken, the same one we're talking about, there's a weird study that was done about it because the people that listened to it over radio said Nixon won the debate. And then the people that watched it on television said that it was Kennedy. And it was all because of Nixon didn't have time to apply makeup. He apparently well, had got, been sick. Actually, it's actually more there's it's legitimate i mean you're actually you're absolutely right the people who listened to it said nixon won the people who watched it said kennedy won nixon had a knee issue and he had just had knee surgery and he was on painkillers and he was campaigning on these painkillers well you know those debates you're standing there for hours and the pain medicine started to wear off and he was in quite a bit of pain in his in his knee and so he starts putting all his weight on his other leg switching back and forth back and forth he starts to sweat he did have makeup on he just they didn't know he had this knee issue that was going to cause all this pain for all this excessive standing they probably would have given him a stool or something to sit on but you know nixon he's not going to let anybody know that he had just had knee surgery and so you know, the pain meds wore off. He's standing there. Uh, he keeps looking at his watch thinking, my God, when's this thing going to end? And all of that is terrible optics. So, yeah, it, that debate hurt him because more people watch. You know, that's the first televised debate 
in the history of the presidency. And so everybody, it was a novelty. Back, TV was just starting to become a real factor in elections and campaigning. Here you have these two guys going head to head. Kennedy was tanned, rested. You know, he's come off the beach somewhere, probably, you know, and just- well, He was, can cool. he was uh, campaigning in California or something yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, he was just cool as a cucumber up there. And here's poor Nixon standing there. He's sweating and he's he's his face is flushed and he's giving terse answers because he's in pain. <laughs> so, yeah. But uh, uh, anyway, he he was really upset with the CIA after that. He said, you guys set me up. You gave him information he wasn't supposed to have. And then he he could use it against me because he's uh, you know, he doesn't have the same clearances I have right now. And so he could use it against me and I can't rebut anything he's saying. And and uh, so he was upset about that. And then the election ends up being razor thin close and he knows that the mafia helped kennedy win but he can't really go after kennedy about that because he has his own mafia ties and if if you're going to investigate one it's going to lead back to the other so he has to swallow it he has to eat the 60 election he's not happy about it but he never forgave the cia for that so then if you fast forward to 68 now he's he's the president and one of the first things he does, this is interesting. A lot of people don't know this. One of the first things he does is he assigns John Ehrlichman, I want you to go to the CIA. I want you to get the entire Bay of Pigs file from the CIA director, Richard Helms. Now, why would President Nixon want the Bay of Pigs file? The Bay of Pigs happened in 61. It was on Kennedy's watch. Kennedy took the fall for it. Everybody knows it was a disaster. Why does he care about the Bay of Pigs file? That was in 69. He's just won the election in November of 68. Like January of 69, as soon as he takes the oath of office, he tells John Ehrlichman, go get that file. Well, he can't get the file. Uh, Helms won't give it to him. And he keeps, Ehrlichman keeps coming back to Nixon. Helms won't give it to me. Helms won't give it to me. And they're going back and forth negotiating. Finally, in September of 71, Ehrlichman just lays it out there for Nixon and says, listen, he ain't going to give it to me. You're going to have to. He said the only person he'll give it to is you, and you have to come to him in person. So in October of 1971, Nixon goes, actually invites Richard Helms, the CIA director, to the White House, and he meets with them. Now, we know this meeting happened because, remember, everything that's happening in the Oval Office is on tape. So we have the conversation. And this is uh, months before any Watergate break-in. So Nixon tells Helms, he goes, uh, I want that Bay of Pigs file. And Helms is sort of, sort of stalling, a little bit hesitant. He says something about, well, the file is hundreds of thousands of pages. You sure you want the whole file? And Nixon explains to him, quote, this is a direct quote, I understand the dirty tricks part of it. I know what you, the CIA, did in Iran. I know what you, the CIA, did in Guatemala. I know what you, the CIA, tried to do at the Bay of Pigs. It was a good plan, but Kennedy didn't, just didn't follow up. And Helms is sitting there kind of confused, and Nixon finally just blurts it out. He says, quote, I need it for a negotiation. I really need it. The who shot John angle. He's wanting this Bay of Pigs file because he thinks that in that file, he's going to find out who shot John. Of course, he's talking about Kennedy. And so later on. Or John Watergate, Dillinger. 
John Dillon. <laughs> no, no, he's talking about Kennedy. And later on, when Watergate blows up and they start listening to the tapes, he's not worried about Watergate. He keeps talking about Bay of Pigs and the Bay of Pigs guys. And the and, and we find out from his uh, Bob Haldeman, they asked him you know, in those hearings, the Watergate hearings, why is Nixon always talking about Bay of Pigs? What's that mean? And Haldeman says, well, that's Nixon. That's how he talks. Bay of Pigs is his way of saying the JFK assassination. So put two and two together. He's asking for a Bay of Pigs file. He's worried about the Bay of Pigs and the Bay of Pigs guys because he's what he's really talking about is the JFK assassination and those assassins, those guys who killed him. Which is why when he asks for that file, he says, he finally reveals why he wants it. He wants to find out the, quote, who shot John angle. So Nixon, from the very moment he becomes president, is trying to get information from the CIA that he can use as blackmail against the CIA. See, if he can get, he knows that they... They know who those guys are, and they know who put those guys together, so they really have the goods on him. He wants the file so he can flip the script. Now, he eventually receives a heavily redacted version of the file, which was scrubbed clean. And so the result of that is Nixon believes that the CIA is out to get him. And 1971 is a crucial year. If you really want to understand Watergate, uh, you got to understand some of the events that happened in 1971. First, the Pentagon Papers. Yeah, Daniel you know, Ellsberg. That's one of Daniel the offices Ellsberg, they broke into, his psychiatrist's office. Right. He leaks 7,000 pages of classified information um, to the New York Times reporter Neil Sheehan. And the New York Times starts printing this stuff. They start publishing. Now, it really doesn't in incriminate uh, Nixon. Because it's mostly about the uh, Vietnam War, so it's about the Eisenhower, JFK, LBJ administrations. But Nixon is furious that classified – it's a principal thing with Nixon. It's like, why is the New York Times allowed to publish classified information? I was on a debate stage with JFK, and I could not debate using classified information, or I would be arrested. And here is a news organization publishing classified information and nothing's happening to him. And so he went to J. Edgar Hoover. He says, hey, you got to stop him. And the FBI wouldn't do anything. And so the information just continues to leak. The articles continue to get printed. And Nixon is furious about it. But that's not the only thing. A lot of people think that's why he started the plumbers unit. And that's partly but there's something else that happens in 71. It's called the Moore-Radford Affair. The Joint Chiefs of Staff were caught in December of 1971, same year, they were caught spying on the president. And it was led by this Yaleman, Jack Radford, who was an aide at the National Security Council. This guy was stealing and copying over 5,000 classified memos from the president and his advisors, and he was passing them out through the White House through intermediaries to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who was Admiral Thomas Moore, and Alexander Haig. And here Haig is, Nixon's deputy assistant for national security affairs during the time, and he's basically stabbing Nixon in the back, getting all this inside information uh, through these stolen classified memos. Is that, the Hague's, words, is that the Haig's commission or Haig's committee? No, this is, this is called the... 
the Moore Radford affair. Moore was the uh, the no, Radford. I meant, guy. Is is that the same guy? The Hayes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Picture. Same guy. In fact, that's the same guy. If you want a, a little anecdote, you remember when President Reagan got shot? Yeah. Was in uh, eighty. I don't remember what year it was, but uh, uh, when he was going into surgery, he was tech, technically incapacitated, which means the president is now George Bush. Well. There was a brief time there where Alexander Haig told the media, when the media asked who's in charge, he told the media, I'm in charge here. <laughs> and Bush had to reassert his authority during that period and say, no, no, uh, constitutionally, I'm the president. There was a little power. Haig always wanted to be in charge. Wait, junior but, or senior? Senior. Oh, George senior. senior. Yeah, he was the vice president under Reagan. And so he becomes the president for that period of time that Reagan is under anesthesia being, you know, there's going through surgery. Well, Alexander Haig told the media famously, I'm in charge here. And so we had this little power struggle in the White House. That just is a little insight into Alexander Haig and how he operated. He was always trying to get his hand. Well, this was a chance during the Nixon administration for him to get inside information on, on his boss, Nixon. And this is why I believe he was half of the deep throat uh combination because he was feeding he had access to a lot of secret information because they were stealing it this jack radford this aide was stealing these copies of these memos and, and copying them and giving them to Haig and giving them to admiral thomas moore so that when the president's sitting there meeting with his joint chiefs he has no idea but his joint chiefs are spying on him behind his back and his deputy assistant for national security affairs is doing the same thing so if you're Nixon, and in 1971, you find out that classified information is being published in the New York Times, and you're the president, and it really doesn't implicate you, but it's a matter of principle. If they can print classified information that implicates your predecessors, and how long before they're printing out uh, classified information, it gets you. So he's fighting that. And then he finds out people on the inside, inside the White House, people he's supposed to be able to trust are are spying on him, and he goes to J. Edgar Hoover, and J. Edgar Hoover just laughs at him. He won't do anything about it. So he's frustrated. So he says, all right, if Hoover won't do anything, I know some covert operators from my days back when I was vice president, and they're really good at what they do, and I'm going to hire them off the books, and we're going to create our own little unit, a special investigative unit. We'll call them the plumbers because their job is to stop leaks. We This White House has become a very leaky ship. This federal government has become a very leaky ship. So these plumbers begin carrying out their own covert ops. Nixon hired them. And like you mentioned, that one of the ops was to break into Ellsberg's psychiatrist office, looking for incriminating documents that they could leak. You know, it's the battle of the leakers. <laughs> and, uh, and then they conducted these multiple Watergate burgers. Well, it's at that point, uh, you know, he he hired a former FBI guy, G. Gordon Liddy, to run these plumbers. And it's at that point that the CIA realizes that the White House and the committee to reelect the president have a secret investigative unit that's running their own covert operations. And the CIA is like, uh, no, that's our job. And so they made a decision at that point to monitor to infiltrate and neutralize Nixon. 
And they say, okay, we got to do it in three ways. We we got to infiltrate three groups. We got to infiltrate the White House. We got to infiltrate the committee to reelect, and we got to infiltrate the plumbers. So they they uh, hired they they basically Richard Helms convinced Nixon to hire E. Howard Hunt to serve as a one hundred dollar a day consultant to the White House. That's why when the burglars were caught. And there was a White House phone number for Howard Hunt. That's why he had that phone number, because Howard Hunt was legitimately employed by the White House as a, a consultant. And uh, he was supposedly retired. Helms told Nixon, listen, this guy, he's he's retired. He's good at what he does, uh, but he's not working for us anymore. He's You can hire this guy. He'll be off the books, basically, and he'll just work for you. But he'll have all the the you'll have all the advantages of having a CIA agent at your your personal your own personal CIA agent doing your bidding. He doesn't work for us anymore. He's retired. Well that was a ruse, as it turns out. He was he was retired in name only. And what his job was for the CIA was to, and Helms was to feed inside information from the White House back to the CIA. And now he's in a position to do it because he's inside the White House. They also infiltrated the Secret Service detail. And the job of these agents that were put into the Secret Service detail, they're only, they had one job in the White House, and that was to maintain the White House taping system. Oh, my goodness. Think about the ramifications there. That means the CIA is listening in on all the president's conversations in the Oval Office. They know what's on those tapes. You think it's a, an accident? That that taping system was revealed when it was revealed by whom it was revealed. No, that was revealed because the CIA said, "Okay, it's now it's time uh, to to spring the trap on Nixon. He's denying everything. We know what he said. We know because we listened to it. We we changed the tapes, so we're going to reveal the presence of those tapes. And so they've got the White House completely infiltrated. The CIA does. Then they they put their man James McCord in creep." And he was a uh, salaried security coordinator. Now, this is a longtime CIA guy. Another that's, the, guy that's a fake job if I've ever heard one. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just another. Nobody has a specific person that manages finances in the White House or all this damn money wouldn't be missing. Well, McCord's job. Maybe that's why they have was someone. security that. coordinator for creep. Now, I don't know what that means, but that was his job title. He's another guy that Richard Helms told Nixon was retired. Turns out he wasn't retired either. You don't so retire. He, <laughs> so all these guys are supposedly retired, but there's, you know, E. Howard Hunt is feeding information back from the inside of the White House. The two guys that are changing out the tapes, they know what's on the tapes. So the CIA knows everything. They know it before the president knows. And then as far as the committee to reelect, they got their guy, James McCord inside He's their security coordinator, and he's feeding information about creep back to the CIA. And then these two guys combined, uh, Richard Hel based on another recommendation by Richard Helms, uh, Helms was asking him when he was putting the plumbers together, or actually when he was, you know, the plumbers were up and running, he was asking for personnel, you know, input. And he trusted Helms. I don't know why, but he did. And so, Helms tells him, you know, why don't you, uh, you know, that E. Howard Hunt guy that's helping you at the White House, why don't you help him, let him help you run your plumber's unit? You know, you know better than everybody, anybody. 
E. Howard Hunt's history. That's all he did for us was covert stuff. Stuff, and that's what, it. Sounds like that's what your plumbers unit's doing. And that's what they need. He's the best at it. He can recruit other people. So Hunt recruits McCord, the, the creep guy, to help with the plumbers unit because McCord has a specialty. Turns out he's a real good. He, he understands how to uh, install wire. Uh, bugs he's a he's a specialist when it comes to bugging devices and so he's the guy that gets arrested you know the wiretapper who gets arrested on that watergate night so now you got hunt and mccord who are feeding inside information about the plumbers unit back to the cia so everything nixon is doing uh is all that information is being fed back to the cia in real time hunt and mccord even went a further step and made sure that all the plumbers surveillance equipment, the cameras, the bugs, whatever, could only be developed by the, CIA, by the CIA. They could only be operated by the CIA, which means they would go in and they'd get this, they'd, they'd use CIA equipment, they'd plant this stuff, install this stuff, and then when the information was coming back, it would have to be uh, developed by the CIA, which gave the CIA access to everything, the plumber, all the intel that the plumbers were gaining that Nixon thought only I'm seeing, the CIA was seeing it first. And so they knew before Nixon knew what the net result was of all this uh, this espionage, these espionage operations that were going on in the name of creep by the plumbers. He, The CIA knew before Nixon what it was netting them. Uh, the Hunt also used CIA-provided intel when they were planning their ops. So when we're going to go to Ellsberg's psychiatrist office and break in, uh, they, he, would, he would get his information, his intel in advance from the CIA while he was planning the whole operation. Did the same thing with all the, the Watergate break-ins. And then uh, that's not all. On the plumber's unit, the mechanics, you know, Hunt and McCord are kind of in charge, but they have mechanics who actually do the burglarizing and plant the bugs and all that kind of stuff. One of them, this guy was a was name, Eugenio Rolando Martinez. And this is one of those Cubans that had been around with Hunt all the way going all the way back to the Bay of Pigs. So he's one of the plumbers who gets arrested that night. He was still actively on a CIA payroll. He was young enough. No one could say he was retired. Hunt recruited this guy and he is still active with the CIA and in his spare time he's he's doing this plumber stuff the C, according to CIA documents in 1974 he was still actively an agent so martinez is reporting back to the CIA case officer everything that the plumbers are doing and so what becomes the moment where the CIA makes the decision that Nixon has to go is that he is not operating the same as president as he did when he campaigned or when he was vice president. For example, when he was a a career politician working his way up, he was a reliable cold warrior. If you go back to 40 in the forties, he was the guy that prosecuted Alger Hiss. I mean, he was, that's, that's where he established his reputation in the American public. He was, he was a cold warrior. He, he went after that commie that, uh, you know, that traitor. And then as vice president from 52 to 60, he was in, he was basically in charge of all these covert operations and that 5412 committee and all that stuff. He's the one that launched all those covert operations in Iran and Guatemala and Cuba and all these places. And he always said it was to fight communism. 
And so when he ran for president in 60, the military industrial complex, the intelligence community, they all assumed they were getting a reliable cold warrior because that's all he'd ever been. But now he becomes president in 68, and he's doing things, trying to be a statesman for the first time. He's trying to avoid conflicts. Like, for example, he's trying to establish closer political and economic ties with China and with Russia. I mean, he's the first president in our history that went to China and went to Russia. And he's starting to oppose uh, the military-industrial complex and this this unlimited buildup and of of uh, you know arms and and unlimited power that the intelligence bureaucracies seem to he was fighting them on these things, and so in their view, just as in 1963 Kennedy had become an obstacle to their power and their desire for a war in Vietnam, well now Nixon is becoming a, a, the same kind of obstacle to their power and their desire to keep the Cold War going on. They don't want detente. You know, under Nixon and Kissinger, we're talking, there's this new era of peaceful relations between us and the Soviets, between us and the Chinese, between us and the communists, and they call it detente. He's got these secret back channels going with the Soviet government, the Chinese government. He's making these trips. He recognized China. You know, when he recognized China, that was a huge, that was a very controversial move on his part to recognize you know, we were technically supporting Taiwan and, and the freedom fighters of Chiang Kai-shek, and they'd been pushed off onto the little island of Taiwan. That's that's the China that we recognize. Well, then China, then Nixon comes along and recognizes mainland China, which had was was which was communist. And everybody's like, you can't do that. And of course, he's the guy that ended the Vietnam War, peace with honor. Remember, he he ended the war that cost JFK his life. And so his goal is peace, detente. He's asserting presidential control over the foreign policy bureaucracies through Kissinger. He's making everybody go through Kissinger to get permission to do this, get permission to do that. Of course, Kissinger reports to Nixon. So Nixon's got his thumb on this, this establishment that wants a continuation of the Cold War, wants hostile relations with the Soviets and hostile relations with the Chinese. But he wants the opposite. He wants peace. He wants uh, to establish economic relations with China that he thinks would be beneficial to the United States uh, in the long run. So he now becomes a target. He's a target of that deep state. And that's when they make plans to uh, set him up at Watergate. You know, you can get rid of a president different ways. In 63, it was an assassination. And you had it set up with a guy who was going to be your the next president. You you controlled him. And that was LBJ. What's the first decision LBJ made? We're going to Vietnam. Well, fast forward to 74 when Nixon, you know, the Watergate scam, that's what get impeachment, the threat of impeachment. You know, he has to resign because uh, you know, the writing's on the wall. Well, they don't do that unless they have it set up where the next guy is under their control. And Ford is every bit under their control as LBJ was under their control in 63. So these are calculated moves with calculated results, desired results, and they set it up in advance to get their guy in charge. The guy that's currently in charge is not playing ball. So 
In 63, they assassinate that guy and ease in his place, LBJ. In 74, they impeach or threaten to impeach the guy that's not playing ball and ease in Gerald Ford. And voila, and all the detente goes away as soon as Ford becomes president. Next thing you know, we're involved in a proxy war in Afghanistan with the Soviets. And right on the heels of Ford comes Reagan. And who's his vice president? George Herbert Walker Bush and the largest military buildup in the history of our country. And <laughs> these what? things, that's why I say when you when you study Watergate, it really takes you back to Kennedy, but it also takes you forward to Reagan. And you start realizing they have a play, they have a playbook and they just keep following the same play. And it keeps working. Well, how much do you understand about the political motivations or relationships that develop between some of these uh, people that hold office power? I mean, I still can't understand why Gerald Ford would pardon Nixon. Why would he be a supporter of Nixon if he was essentially Jay Hoover's pet? Ford didn't give a flip nickel about Nixon, but that nickel? was what he was okay. put in power to do. That was the deal. In order for to get Nixon to resign, here's the thing. You know, there is a a risk if you're playing ball with Nixon. Remember now, Nixon is a true believer and he'll do things. He'll make decisions that might hurt him in the short run. Uh, but he believes they're the right thing to do. And, I, you know, we talked about how he, you know, in that debate, he wouldn't reveal classified information. And, and so he's he's got some principle. And if you believe you're innocent in this whole Watergate thing, you believe you've been set up, which is what Nixon thought. Then your inclination is to fight. So they have to somehow finesse it, force him to resign, right? Or and 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 do it in a way that doesn't implicate any. Maybe he can hang on to his belief that he was innocent, that he's doing it for the good of the country. They got to get him out of the a way to make way for Ford, because if he fights it, you're going to have to have a impeachment trial in the Senate. And if you have an impeachment trial in the Senate, a lot of this evidence could come out. Remember now, these conspirators, they always try to avoid a trial. You go back to 63, it was you kill Oswald, so there's no trial because there's so much evidence that was exculpatory. That trial would have been a, you know, that that was not an open and shut case as much as the American people believed. Well, if you have a Watergate trial, as much as a, the narrative made it look bad for Nixon, there was a lot of evidence there that implicated other people, including the CIA. So you can't have a trial. So you have to drive Nixon from office. And you do that by saying, if you lose that trial, which you're probably going to lose it, you lose your pension. Now you don't have immunity, so you're a private citizen. You can be criminally prosecuted. You could go to prison. Yeah, you might take a lot of people down in D.C. with you, but in the end, you're, you and your family are going to suffer the most. So that's that's what they presented to him. If you, if you resign, you keep your pension. And Ford, whom, uh, whom you made a deal with back when we, you made him vice president, will pardon you. That was Ford's price. That was the price Nixon gave Ford to be made vice president. He knew where this was probably headed. And if he didn't know, his advisors did. And they told him, then you got to get a promise from Ford that he will pardon you if and when that becomes necessary. 
if you're going to make him the new vice president, because remember, he appointed him. He picked him. This wasn't an election. So after Spiro Agnew flamed out or was taken out, Ford was presented to him on a silver platter. And the only deal in, in that whole thing was that Ford had to pardon Nixon if it came to it. And, you know, 30 days after Ford becomes president, what does he do? Pardon Nixon. That was the deal. So now Nixon keeps his pension. He He's free from the the threat of prosecution. Ford's the new president. He's paid his price that he had to pay to Nixon to be put in that position. And now he's president. And now he can do what he was put there by his handlers, basically. And I use that word intentionally because Ford had handlers. He was he was handled his whole, pretty much his whole political career from the time of the Warren Commission on. He was handled. And, you know, he did what he was supposed to do to get that position of presidency of, of, the, of the presidency. Now he's free to do what his handlers want him to do. And that's the whole point of getting Nixon out and putting Ford in because they didn't control Nixon, but they control Ford. There wasn't any political stuff. It wasn't like he had an ideology politically. It was different from Nixon or agreed with Nixon. Had nothing to do. It It was just about having their guy. And he was an empty suit. He was a placeholder for the people behind the throne, the Geppettos pulling the Pinocchio strings. And and you got to have somebody who's who, who's the president. So they put in the guy that they could control. They got rid of the guy they couldn't control. What about other people they got rid of to get to Nixon? You mentioned Spiro Agnew. Yeah, well, Spiro Agnew is the, he was the bulldog. <laughs> the nattering nabobs of negativity. I, I love that quote. Uh, uh, Spiro Agnew, just, he had the ability to get, to fight back in the media against the press. When the press was, you know, the media had a very contentious relationship with Nixon. They didn't like him. And he didn't like them. He didn't trust him. He came from the West Coast. He came from poverty. He didn't go to the elite schools in the Northeast. He wasn't Harvard or Yale educated. Uh, he just didn't fit in with those D.C. elites. And so the media always, they kind of viewed him as less than, and they never missed an opportunity to make fun of him and to to get stir up stories and try to get controversy. And Nixon could not fight back. He he was just not equipped from a temperamental standpoint. He'd lose his cool. <laughs> he just wasn't good in that setting. But boy, Spiro, Spiro Agnew was. And Spiro Agnew would just ridicule the press, make fun of them, challenge their, their, their mindset, you know, and say, you know, you're, you're all biased you're all a bunch of democrats he'd, he'd just give it right back he was kind of like trump before trump but he could do it in such a way that there was a sense of humor to it and he really made him look bad and so when it became clear to the deep state they had to get rid of nixon they realized well we can't get rid of nixon and elevate agnew he's he's worse than nixon so we got to get rid of agnew first and they went back and found uh now, I have not studied all the corruption that happened in the state of Maryland when he was governor. Uh, I do know that uh, uh, he was, you know, there was a lot of truth to some of the stuff that came out about Spiro Agnew. But there was, it had also been, uh, it was one of these deals where they used it as a cudgel to 
get him to resign. And that was the deal that they made. He was going to stay and fight and try to get through the prosecution. And they basically said the same thing to him. They said to Nixon about Watergate trial. They said, if you lose that trial, you, you're going to lose your pension. You're going to be criminally prosecuted. When you come become a uh, regular citizen, you can go to prison, all this stuff. They said the same thing to Spiro. They said, you know, if you resign the vice presidency, we can make all these charges go away. And you pay a small fine. It really wasn't a lot of uh, a lot of anything. Today, people would laugh at the corruption, right? When you start hearing some of the levels of corruption in our White House today, you would laugh at the, at the amount of levels of corruption that were alleged against Spiro Agnew. But they presented it in such a way that we're going to throw the book at you if you fight it. If you resign, that's all we're asking. Just resign. We'll, you'll pay a small fine. No big deal. So he resigned to save his family, and he paid the small fine, and he he went off into the sunset. And that's when they presented to Nixon Ford, and it all set up. They had to get rid of, they had to get rid of Agnew first. And I, I started off with that quote. One of the famous quotes he had to the media was he was talking to him. He says, "All you guys do is look for controversy. All you do is look for negative stories. You're a bunch of Democrats." Uh, you're liberals in sheep's clothing. You pretend to be impartial. You pretend like you, 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 you're playing it uh, square across the, uh, you know, you're, you're playing it even, but you're not. We all know that. You're just a bunch of, quote, nattering nabobs of, neg of negativity. And it's pretty brilliant. Uh, today, even it's become like a colloquialism, and uh, everybody knows who said that. So they had to get Spiro Agnew out of the way to put Ford in there. And then they could concentrate on Nixon. So the timing of all this is really important. You know, you can't you can't get rid of Nixon first, and then now you've got another problem. Agnew's going to pick somebody like him, and now you got two problems. I mean, so, can you represent that with the fact that how many people distanced themselves from Richard Nixon during his whole the Watergate takedown or whatever the targeting of the CIA, it seems like he really had nobody to really have his position or have his back on anything. And it's not just because he was hated all around. I mean, obviously he had supporters and he had fans. Um, but the way that the history books teach it was that he just, everyone disliked him, even Republicans, Democrats, everybody just hated Nixon. But I was like, I don't know. It seems a little bit different. If you really look at how everybody no, was attacking him. No, this is politics in Washington. Uh, Robbie, in 72, everybody loved him because he won the biggest landslide election in the history of our country. Oh, everybody loved you then. And in 73, 74, when all this Watergate stuff starts dripping out, drip, 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 you, you start losing your friends. What you find out in politics is you really don't have as many friends as you think you have. You, you have people that are hangers on. They, they, if you have coattails, which in 72, Nixon had tremendous coattails. You look at all down the ballot, the Republican Party did really well because Nixon did really well. And so, yeah, you got a lot of friends. But as soon as he starts becoming a drag on the ticket, which by 74, you know, they got congressional elections coming up in 74. And this Watergate stuff's getting thrown in all Republicans' faces. And so if you're a Republican from a... You know, your your first term congressman, you won in 72. You came in the sweep to power with Nixon in 72. But you're coming from a district that tr is traditionally Democrat. And the only reason you won in 72 is because Nixon was so popular. Well, now he's not popular. 
So now you got to go back and campaign in a district that doesn't like Nixon. Now, he's not popular. You can't use him as an asset anymore. What do you have going for you? They always vote Democrat. Now, the only reason you got in, it was kind of a fluke you got in when you got in. So now all these so-called friends, these people that that uh, have their jobs or owe their jobs to the fact that Nixon won in 72, now they turn on him. They have to. That's how politics works. You have to be get out front of this and say, well, now see, you know, I was for him when, I, when he was on the up and up. And now that he's involved in this scandal, you know, you, you got to kind of get out in front and, and, and turn your back on him. And so, yes, people left and right start turning their back on him. And all of a sudden, politically, Nixon was kind of isolated. Now, partly, some of this was of his own doing, because when the when the investigation started to focus on the White House and the news started tightening, he started offering up uh, lower level staffers and they're being, you know, Bob Haldeman and Ehrlichman and all these guys that had served him uh, now are being basically uh, fed to the fed to the wolves by Nixon, hoping that that will appease the investigators if they can take out 90% of the White House and leave Nixon standing. So Nixon kind of did what people in authority positions do when they get caught with their hand in the cookie jar. They, uh, you know, it's it's kind of like a football coach. I, I was watching this the other day. There was a football coach who is, he's on the hot seat and they, the, his administrators come to him. They say, well, you have two choices. We can fire you now. Mm-hmm. which is what everybody wants us to do. Or you can fire all of your defensive coordinator, your offensive coordinator, all your coaches, you should hire a bunch of new assistants and that buys you one year. And if things improve, then maybe we'll keep you. If they don't, this just buys you a year. So Nixon was kind of doing that with his underlings. He was, he was, you know, letting them loose and they were falling on their sword for him. They were keeping their mouth shut for him to a degree and so he became more isolated in that sense because one by one, as you look around, the White House gets emptier and emptier as they get, <laughs> as all of his underlings get taken out by this Watergate scandal. And one day he looks around, it's just him. Well, in part, you have to look at the fact that he was getting severely paranoid. And maybe part of that was for good reason. But I do believe that some of that paranoia, he kind of shot himself in the foot. You know, Robbie, he came into office that way. He... I'm sure he was a part of Eisenhower's administration. He had well, to have some knowledge of what was it's going on. It's not just on. that. It's it goes back to where he was raised and how he was raised. He he was raised poor. He always had to work. Uh, he went to a little college out there. He had to pay his own way. His mom and dad dad was always between jobs. Uh, he had a real domineering mom. Uh, he. When he runs for Congress and eventually for set, you know, he gets into the Washington political scene. He's surrounded by people that went to Harvard and Yale, all the elite schools. They come from the families with money. He never had any of that. And so he always felt like he was the little engine that could, you know, that little children's book. And he's just having to run to keep up with these guys that were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. And he wasn't. That's why it's so ironic that when you look at who his favorite, uh, you know, who, who who is 
joined at the hip with him is Henry Kissinger. Kissinger and Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger. Kissinger came from that East Coast establishment. He had all those that best training and that you know he he was Jewish and he had the money and he had all the best schools and he was from that that world and Nixon wasn't from that world and Nixon was always trying to prove that he was just as good and but he always had a wary eye on those people because he thought I when push comes to shove I'm not one of them and I know that they know that and they will turn on me in a New York minute. And so he was notoriously paranoid. He was paranoid of the Kennedys. I mean, he was obsessed with the Kennedys. And, and that comes from 60, when he got screwed out of the presidency. So you think what, about— Which Kennedy did he make a statement about in an interview? He made an interview. I don't think it was Bobby. I don't think it was Ted. I don't know if there's an Edward Kennedy. He made a yeah. statement. He made a statement well, about someone and said that he was a great politician, fabulous speaker, um, you know, ruthless, uh, astute. And he says all these weird sexual things where I start going, God damn it. Why can't you just talk normal? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know who you're referring to, but I know that uh, in the Watergate deal, they were looking up you know, and they were investigating just about every aspect of, of the Nixon White House. And they discovered that. Nixon's advisors or the Nixon White House had gone to the uh, Library of Congress and were checking out every Kennedy book they could find. And they were really interested in Teddy Kennedy because that was the next guy. See, this is 74-ish, and they were worried about the next Kennedy to come along. You figure JFK's dead, Bobby's dead. The the next one is Teddy. And they were and Chappaquiddick had already happened. So they were looking up all the stories they could find on Chappaquiddick because they fully expected Teddy to be the next big Kennedy to come along that was going to be a problem. And of course, Teddy did run in 76. So it, he didn't get the nomination, but he did run. So yeah, he was, and you know, that obsession with the Kennedys is not uh, without merit. You know, he did get screwed out of the 60 presidency. He did you know, and he felt like the CIA took a side in that whole deal. So he emerges from 60 with those, those, you know, those tendencies that he came into politics with to be a little bit insecure, to be a little bit paranoid. Well, that's all been reinforced now by this election 60. And so now he's, he has targets. He has the Kennedys a target, uh, the CIA is a target. And so the, I guess if he had one proclivity that, that was a weakness that could be exploited, that was it. And I think we mentioned, we were talking off air before, he didn't really have uh, a weakness when it came to women. He was in a, he was happily married, uh, kind of a strange marriage, but he, he was happily married. You couldn't tempt him with women, seemingly. Money, he was the poorest vice president we ever had. He didn't have any money. He didn't have any investment income. His wife never worked. Uh, he was just, he was a working man. That's all he knew. It's the background he came from. His daddy was a working man. So you couldn't tempt him with money. Uh, he was always poor. And he was always needing contributions and stuff, but it wasn't because he was taking trips and he wasn't buying houses and he, you know all the things that you think politicians do with that money. He wasn't doing any of that. But he was paranoid, 
And the CIA figured out we can play to that. We can play to that. And so when it became clear that he had set up the plumber's unit, they said, well, let's pretend like we're helping him with this plumber's unit. Let's offer him the services of some of our expert retirees. <laughs> let's offer them him the, the expert uh, advice of E. Howard Hunt and the contributions of J James McCord. And what, you know, and we'll get something out of it. He'll get something out of it. And, you know, Richard Helms, you would think he'd be so suspicious of Richard Helms because Richard Helms represented the CIA. He was a CIA director, but Richard Helms played Nixon like a fiddle. He knew how to uh, sweet talking and to compliment. If you ever listen to those tapes, Helms is very deferential in those meetings with Nixon. Mr. President, yes, that that's a brilliant idea. You know, all this suck up stuff. And Nixon loved that stuff. He just he did. And he was that was his vulnerability. Well, so I think he, Nixon coming from a place that didn't really have a lot of power and really probably wasn't given the time of day. It must have been nice to be the president where you would think your center focus of everybody's and the government would be focused on every like a king. Like everyone kind of. But I think he realized that's not what it was like. And I think later towards the end is kind of when he started noticing how every agency was kind of attacking them or digging dirt up on them and everyone was trying to get rid of them because you're at a job. It's like when a bunch of your coworkers are talking shit on you. Doesn't feel good. But, you know, you start realizing, OK, I'm being singled out and it might just be best for me to go. But with Nixon, it's just different because if you examine I mean, even the statements of things he said, those Nixon tapes, as shitty equality as they are, they get taken out of context as much as the John F. Kennedy stuff does. The John F. Kennedy, everyone knows the secret society speech where if there was a secret society, I would expose it. And, you know, he believes in this uh, dark government or something like that. It's always clipped up on people's Instagrams talking about Illuminati, all this. Well, listen to the full thing. He's talking about that he does not believe there is one, but if there is, he would do his best to expose it. It's a little bit of a different tone and gives a different meaning. Nixon with the same thing. You talk about Bohemian Grove. He mentions like it's the – I think – and this is his words exactly. He's, he says the word fag, but he said it's the faggiest goddamn thing that has ever been. Now, people clip that and go, he's against homosexuality. I'm like, hold on. It's a different time period, but listen to the full thing. He says – I do not participate in their events, but I have been there a couple of times, and I can tell you that it's the strangest thing. And that's the ending of that Bohemian Grove clip. Well, what other politicians do we have that have ever acknowledged Bohemian Grove? We have photos, but that has been a myth, and it's been like Area 51. Well, listen to his statements about homosexuality and talking about feminism. You can take it out of context like people do on YouTube. They clip certain bits of it to make him seem like a horrible president, but then if you really listen to the full clip— He's talking about, in my opinion, in my perspective, people can be entitled to their own beliefs and their own sexualities and their own whatever. But when it comes to building a strong government compared to our competitors, and he's viewing it as more as we can't be sensitive to communism and we can't be. So he's kind of handling it in a different angle. I guess it's the impact of the words. But I think history has only focused on slanting Richard Nixon. And to me, I'm just trying to understand more about him. I'm not defending him in any way. I'm just trying to look at something when – a lot of our history has been written one way and said one thing, and we've all learned in many different scenarios. I think everyone has come across where the, the narrative has been different, and they necessarily kind of see the, what the real history is. 
I go, why doesn't Nixon get a look through? And I'm not, like I said, not defending him, but I think there's a lot of politicians we can point at as being horrible. And I just feel like when you look at someone who's been targeted as much as Nixon, maybe he had different opinions on the presidency or what the establishment was going towards for a while. I think Kennedy did the same thing, but Kennedy, obviously, we know what happened with him. So it's just, Nixon was a bit about resigning. Nixon thought, I mean, if you listen to a smoking gun tape. That was a rant. Thought, and it wasn't a good one at all. I could tell you yeah, that. Yeah, but if you listen to specific passages in particular, it's clear that Nixon thought that it was for the good of the country that this Watergate thing go away because he thought it's not just going to make me look bad, which, you know, honestly, if, if, if he come clean about Watergate, what it was, I think he could have survived it. It was the cover up that got him, but he's concerned about what's going to do to some of our institutions. And he knows that the history, like, for example, he says in one of it, in the smoking gun tape, he says, quote, if this gets out, it would make the CIA look bad. And it's likely to blow the whole Bay of Pigs thing which I think would be very bad for both the CIA and the country. Uh, you know, that's one of the things about Nixon. He didn't mention any, any anywhere in there about it'd be bad for me. He's talking about the CIA looking bad. Now, why would it make the CIA look bad? Because he knows the CIA is behind this. They've, they've sort of, they've, they've engineered this whole thing. And if it goes back to the Bay of Pigs thing, he knows that they're the ones who, uh, were involved in the JFK assassination. So that would be bad for the CIA and the country. So, you know, you can kind of spin it that way. And then when it comes to a little bit later in the smoking gun tape, he said he understood right away the value of E. Howard Hunt. He said, quote, this Hunt guy is the key. He's the lever. He won't cover a lot of things. If you open that scab, there's a hell of a lot of things. Because he understood that any of the burglars could say something uh, and he could probably refute it, but there's nothing he can say or anybody can say. E. Howard Hunt knows too much. He just knows too much. And so, uh, you know, you, you you follow the breadcrumbs a little bit through these tapes and you realize that Nixon knew what was going on. He, he, he was not a Johnny-come-lately. He figured it out. He knew what was going on. So his decision to resign was a calculation. And I honestly believe it was for his family. Because he was threatened, just like Spiro Agnew, in a long, protracted battle. Yes, he could probably survive it because he could throw a lot of people under the bus or make deals with them in exchange for their vote. He'll keep quiet about what he knows. Nobody in Washington knew more about covert uh, ops that had been going on in the name of anti-communism than Richard Nixon. He basically wrote the book on it. From 52 to 60, as Eisenhower's vice president, he was in charge of the 5412 committee. And so all covert ops had to go through him. He knew all, he knew where all the bodies were buried. And so there he had a lot of, of ammunition on his side, too, that he could have used in a water in a Watergate impeachment trial that he chose not to use. You know, juxtapose him against Clinton. Shit, he could have called out Hoover for mob stuff. He could have he called could've... out anybody. Oh, yes. He could have burned the whole, su whole... Why didn't he do that? That's so crazy. I would have fucking stuck my middle fingers up and I would have smoked a cigar you in the White you House. Have to, you have to compare him against like somebody like Clinton. Clinton went to the mattresses to defend himself. And 
Nobody, you know, in in today's you just got a bro job. I don't know why people are so well. Upset. Yeah, but that thing had legs. It could go in all different directions. But here's the th- here's she the she did have legs. <laughs> she was still yeah, able to I, fit I under that funny, podium, uh, though. <laughs> I saw a funny card. I saw a funny cartoon the other day, and it was a picture of Clinton Clinton at the Oval Office desk taking a phone call, and he's the only picture in the phone call in the in the picture, and the caption said, "Only people of a certain age." Know that there are two people in this picture. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I see that too. I'm more mad at Hillary Clinton in that whole situation because I would have expected someone to just start tossing his clothes out on the front lawn of the no, White no, no, House. Because no. Hillary, listen, Hillary's like Ford. Hillary's all about power. And and yeah, but Bill she knows she's her. never going to be president. Come on now. I don't know, man. Until nah, Trump dude, she's along, it was pretty much. She's like that she was going to be the next president. I mean, Obama thought she was going to be the well, next. Well, they were but when Trump was uh going against her, they were already having briefings with her, like if she was mm-hmm. going to be the next president. The, the whole intelligence was. community thought she was going to be the next president. The 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 former president thought she was going to be the next president. She didn't even campaign that hard. I mean, nobody thought she was going to lose. You look at the polls. But anyway, going back to this Clinton versus Nixon thing. Clinton, in in today's context, nobody knows no more about corrupt dealings in Washington than the Clintons do, which is why they escape every time. They don't get indicted for anything. Nothing happens to them. They don't get impeached. Nothing. Because they have the goods on And I am convinced the Clintons play hardball. Okay? And, and there's a lot of dead bodies out there to prove what I'm saying. <laughs> they play hardball. And so if anybody comes after the Clintons, they just say, okay, fine. Be prepared because we're going to burn your house down in the same. If I'm going down, you're going down too. Nixon was not that kind of guy. Nixon, there was a sense of honor about him that he did not want the CIA to be destroyed over this, even though he didn't trust the CIA. He did not want this Bay of Pigs angle to be exposed, even though he knew the truth about what had happened to John. He he wanted the information so that he had it at his disposal, but he he never used it. He never used it. And when he could have used it, he backed out the back door. And he went honorably. He 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 resigned and he took the bullet. He became a disgrace, a national disgrace. And he had to work his way back to the point where, you know, right before he died, he was kind of getting back in the good graces of a lot of people. It took a lot of time. And that's kind of Nixon's modus operandi when he lost the 60 campaign he goes back to california and runs for governor and he loses the governor and he tells the media afterwards you won't have nixon to kick around anymore and he basically quits politics and when he comes back in 68 and runs and wins they label it the greatest comeback in political history nixon up from the dead well he sort of had a, a same experience after he resigned the presidency. He he resigns in disgrace. He he goes back to California. He goes back and he he's blackballed from all the the political circles, right? And and he sort of licks his wounds like he did earlier, you know, before. And then he sort of makes a comeback. That's that's who Nixon was. He understood that dynamic because he'd been through it. And so he felt like, I can survive this, but my family cannot survive me in prison. My family cannot survive what will happen to us if I fight this. And I don't want to take the United States through this 
on what would be a national nightmare. I don't want to expose all the dirty secrets and, and all of our dirty laundry. I don't want to do that. So I'm going to ease myself out of this and chalk it up to a lesson learned. I got hosed in 1960 and I'm getting hosed again. Clinton wasn't like that. Clinton said, I'll burn your house down if you, and so they just make deals with him. Well, they kill people. That's how he survives. That that's the difference in character. Nixon actually had some character. Clinton gets and, rid of people. That's what he does. He's not a burn your house down type. He's oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, 12 we, shots to the back of the head. Right. I mean, you can go through, but that's just not how Nixon played it. And so a lot of things about Nixon do not make sense if you try to understand him through the lens of typical politicians. Like, for example, why didn't he just burn the White House tapes? That is a, why didn't you just burn them? It's a lingering I mean, think question. About what, think about what Hillary did. When they said, hey, you've got a server that's been in your basement or in your closet, she and her aides took hammers and bleach bit and all this stuff, and they destroyed the server so that you could never subpoena them emails and find out what was on them. She just destroyed the evidence. Why did And nothing happened to her. Yeah. Why didn't Nixon go to Camp David, fill up the limo, with the trunk full of all these tapes and have himself a bonfire, roast some marshmallows, and then just say, oh, uh, uh, you know, and pull a Clinton and say, well, I don't know what happened. You know, it's funny you said that exact example because I've heard that from a couple other Nixon historians that have all mentioned that specifically a bonfire on the front of the White House lawn. Well, you know, if you the worst that can happen to you then is you'd be charged with destruction of evidence, but they don't know what the evidence says. It was what was on those tapes that was the coup de gras bullet to his brain, to his political career. So if you make a political calculation in that sense, like, like a Clinton would do, you'd say, well, I'm, I'll take the hit over destruction of evidence any day. I think it's much like MK MKUltra. Um, not saying that there's like brainwashing involved in this, but the fact that when they destroyed documentation, what it did do – Probably, I mean, I, I believe they do have a record of it somewhere. I don't think they just destroyed 100% of all the files on it. Obviously, we know from receipts that were in a warehouse that it did exist and the project did go on. But because he didn't destroy those tapes, if he would have destroyed them, when he goes up there, he gets charged for obstruction of justice, then any thing they can fabricate and create that gets labeled to him would be considered true. So if you have the actual factual record still in standing – if that's not worse than what they could create, does that make sense? I mean, possibly. Because MK I, Ultra, I mean, you can go all around the board saying brainwashing, elves, super aliens, anything like that. And it all has a tiny bit of weight depending on how the craziness is, only because the stuff that has come out that we do know so that bad. they haven't refuted is really bad. So right. the fact that they destroyed that's all this stuff. Robbie, that's the direction I would go. I think the reason they destroyed that evidence is because it's confirmation of some diabolical stuff. I mean, it doesn't seem and they would dressing rather up people be, as hippies and go, right, getting would, luring people into brothels is pretty fucking Oh, it's bad. way worse than that. And 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 I I what they have publicly had to admit to in court proceedings where they've lost civil lawsuits and CIA's had to make settlements with families is so bad. But it, it's still in the area of speculation, and people will say, well allegedly and as long as there's no document you can't say for sure and they would rather have the allegedly than the for sure so by destroying the documents it keeps it in the alleged category 
for a lot of the stuff. And I, I don't think Nixon made those kind of calculations. I think Nixon thought, you know, destroying evidence is breaking the law. And, you know, you know, this is a guy who was not being hurt by the Pentagon Papers. It was not hurting his administration, but he it set him on a course because the principle of it, you can't allow this to happen. I I cannot be the president that allows classified information into the New York Times. So I am going, this is going to be the hill I die on. And it had nothing to do with him. He was trying to save the legacy of LBJ and JFK and Eisenhower and and a, a larger principle, which is that classified information is supposed to be classified. It had nothing to do with him. Name me another politician that would fight so hard for principal and other people if it didn't bring him any political benefit. I don't know of any. Marion Barry. Oh, my God. <laughs> the mayor of D.C. that smoked yeah. crack and got reelected. Hey, he was a functional crackhead. Yeah, functional crackhead. The That's only problem like, I have with Hunter Biden is that he's not functional. <laughs> he was functional. We wouldn't Can I care. tell you a little story about functional? Yeah. Uh, this is a personal story. So I got hired to be a basketball coach in a school a few years ago. And the principal came to me and said, hey, I would like you to consider this guy to be your assistant coach. And I said, oh, well, tell me about him. You know, I was new to the area. He said, well, he tells me he's coached the girls. He's coached this. He's done that. And uh, <clears throat> you need to know he's also a <clears throat> functional alcoholic. I said, oh, what's that? That's the first time I ever heard that term. <laughs> anyway, long story short. We went to camp and that functioning alcoholic, oh my God, that was the longest week of camp I've ever been to in my life. The things he did. And I had to go back and tell the principal, listen, he cannot be my assistant. If people knew what happened this last week and I would be fired. And so it turned into a big thing. But I, I remember when I heard that term functional alcoholic, I remember thinking, what does that mean? And then to hear you say he was a functional, what'd you say, crackhead? Crackhead, yeah. <laughs> functional crackhead. That just means he said it was medicinal crack. It, it was medicinal crack. She's medicinal. In the <laughs> case that I was telling you that story, it just means that he hit it a little bit better, but all the behaviors were exactly the same. <laughs> so yeah, I said you got you can some people can function. We all know construction workers. Most of those guys are it's not Mountain Dew that they're just drinking in that right. last two liter. Something well, else you know, some people it, it gets to I've heard this. I don't know this for a fact. Maybe it's like this with you and your energy drinks. If you don't, you get so used to them, your body gets so conditioned to them that if you take it away, all of a sudden you can't operate withdrawals. Efficient, efficiently all of a sudden you start having these problems i need my coffee i need my drugs well, yeah I, that's I, I mean that's real that's that's with withdrawals i don't get that off of caffeine but um alcohol is the only thing that you cannot cut uh cold turkey um it's why during the pandemic they had to leave liquor stores open because you will have icus filling up with people who are going through withdrawal from alcohol that and i think no i think that's one of the only things that can actually kill you if you just stop it you have to wean off of it um, but you but that's why all those construction people they need it. I mean, I, I when I go to a liquor store or something on the weekend, I come across these people that grab these little bottles of 99s because they're 99 proof. They grab 10 or 15 of them, then they walk right into the store right beside and get ready for their shift to food line or something. That's just that's how they function. I used to work with people that used to do that all the time. It's crazy, but um, different life, different stroke for different folks, I guess. But I got to ask you this on kind of like a wrapping point, but which president to you? 
I guess, have you had better insight on? I mean, you don't have to say Nixon. I've learned to like Truman a lot more, um, mostly towards the end. I don't really like his beginning because he kind of seems like a government stooge in a sense. But then when you get towards the ending, I mean, you have statements about Dag Hammarskjöld where he says he was on the cusp of getting something done before they killed him. Notice how I said they killed him. Right, right. And then he's got statements about the CIA that he published in a Washington Post article talking about that he believes that it's been right. – Completely Truman, off from its original point. Three things about Truman, and I don't really put a lot of stock in words, but three things that he did. Number one, he recognized Israel after the war. That was not an easy decision in the world or within the Democrat Party. He took that was a courageous step. Actually, if you want to add a fourth, before we get to that, he made the decision to drop the atomic bombs. Whether you agree with it or not, it took a lot of guts to make that decision. And he stood by it. He never ran from it. Number two, he recognizes Israel. Uh, number three, he desegregated the military. After World War II, he, and again, he's a Democrat. And Democrats in the South were not in favor of desegregating anything. And that's the largest institution in our government. That's a courageous step. And then the fourth thing is something you mentioned. He wrote that op-ed to the Washington Post about the uh, CIA becoming rogue. This was one month after the assassination of JFK. Four things you got to give a lot of credit, you know. And, and yes, you're right. When they put Truman in, and they, they basically he was picked. Uh, you know, FDR was dying when he ran for his last election, so they knew that whoever was going to be picked had to be somebody that uh, could possibly become president because FDR probably was going to die. But they thought they could control him, and they found out real quick they couldn't. So, yeah, I, I have a lot of respect for Truman. Truman's a Democrat. I have a lot of respect for JFK. The more I learn about him, the more I respect him because he changed. He was not one of these ideologically uh, stilted guys that just comes in. It's all about party. It's all about I'm going to it's all about politics. He learned from mistakes. He learned from the Bay of Pigs. And he learned from the Cuban Missile Crisis which was not a mistake on his part. It was a it was a very gutsy decision on his part. He started to show some intestinal fortitude, standing up to the intelligence community, standing up to the Joint Chiefs. He understood uh, Khrushchev and reached out to Khrushchev. And they began this back channel where everyone's pressuring Khrushchev on his end to go to, you know, continue the Cold War against America. And everybody's pressuring JFK on his end to do the same. Here you have JFK nurturing, cultivating a relationship with Khrushchev that resulted in the nuclear test ban treaty. And it's why Howard Hughes JFK, helped out with that too. Yeah, well, yes. And, and it's why JFK ends up losing his life, number one. Number two, it's why Khrushchev a year later it's overthrown and is no longer premier of Russia. They both paid for that. But JFK paid the, uh, obviously the ultimate price. I have a lot of respect for JFK and the decisions that he was making in those three short years, and here he is, a young guy, but he's learning so fast, and he's showing some tremendous courage and guts. Even going to Dallas, he knew Dallas was going to be a risky trip. He knew it. He says, well, I'm not running from it. I'm the president of all Americans, not just the cities that voted for me. I know Dallas voted against me in, in 60, but and I know it's a hostile place, but I'm going to go anyway. He, he was just that he would give these speeches, American University out in Seattle, and he was challenging the orthodoxy, the Cold War Red Scare orthodoxy. He was always challenging it. Now, he had his personal 
you know, demons and stuff. But I think that's true of everybody. And I, I have a lot of respect for Kennedy going forward. Those are two Democrats. Uh, I have zero respect for LBJ. I, I mean, I think that guy's just a borderline thug is what he is. I've The more I learn about him, the less respect I have for him. And the, the only so weight I put the, in for LBJ is the fact that I believe he was the only person that probably could have matched Hoover or probably taken down Hoover if it ever got to gotten to but that see, point. See, he made a political calculation. And the political calculation was that's why Hoover was Hoover knew that the assassination was going down before it happened. That's why he was at that Clint Murchison estate. But he made a political calculation that was I would rather have LBJ be my president than JFK because JFK is going to retire me in a year. LBJ is going to make me director for life. And LBJ made a political calculation too. I, I'd rather, he used to say, uh, I'd rather have uh, J. Edgar Hoover inside my tent pissing out than outside my tent pissing in. And his calculation was, well, he probably has a file on me somewhere, but boy, consider if he's on my side, how useful he could be. And when it, I could be president, the only guy that could interrupt that would be LBJ or J. Edgar Hoover because he knows the evidence. But if uh, if he gets something out of this, i.e. a lifetime appointment, he'll cover up all that evidence and the Warren Commission won't get the evidence that uh, in, <laughs> that clears Lee Harvey Oswald and we'll have an open and shut case. So they were both mutually. That's why I say I have no respect for LBJ. He didn't make any decisions out of principle. He needed he wanted to be president. And the only way that that was going to happen was if JFK died, because he was fixing to be indicted. He was going to be off the ticket. The only way that happens is if JFK dies. So he went along with it. And then he went along with the war, you know, the cover up afterwards. And then he went along with the Vietnam War, because that was the price for him. You know, you, you talk about Ford's price. Ford's price to be president was a pardon. LBJ's price to be president was the Vietnam War. 54,000 Americans died so that LBJ could be president. I have no respect for LBJ, none for Ford. Okay. I actually have respect for Jimmy Carter. And I know Jimmy Carter was not a good president. I know as far as the economy was concerned, but a lot of that again is narrative. And he is the one guy who tried to reform the CIA, which is why he was a one-termer. You know, guys who become threats to the system get flushed. We've already talked about JFK, how he got flushed. Nixon got flushed. The election took care of flushing Carter. And then you have to fast forward to the next guy who got flushed, and that was Trump. He got flushed. Same thing, fighting the intelligence. You know, from the very minute Trump wins the nomination becomes, and then later becomes president, the, the intelligence uh, community is foisting this this hoax, Russia collusion hoax on the American people, that was all by the the intelligence community and, and Hillary Clinton. But you can see who his enemy is, and that's why he was a one-termer. Now, he may get back in, but I guarantee you that it's going to be against they're going to fight and scream and, and everybody was agreeing with you all up until you said the trump thing and then everybody just went no nope, i know i know anymore i know because there's a lot of people they just can't hear it but i named three democrats you asked me who i respected i named three democrats truman jfk carter and then i named Tr trump those are the four guys now truman admittedly didn't have to go up against a strong cia because 
it was just getting started. But shoot, JFK did, Nixon did, and so did Trump. And you see what happens to these guys. You know, and and I think I had mentioned to you in an earlier podcast, their job, the CIA, the, the main thing that they operate, the, the world that they live in is the world of disinformation. That's what they do. They are masters at deception, at lying to you. They'll you'll look at them and you'll think you see what you see, and they'll tell you it's something else. They lie to your face. That's what they do. So what I've learned about anything that comes on, I mean, Hunter Biden. All right, we can't go into all of this. Come on, we can't go into all of this. Come on now. Well, was it true or not that the, the laptop was it's true? It's true, Who yeah. Was it? It, it was in Who the state right it? beside me. Who was it? That came out and said it wasn't. It was Russian disinformation. It was the intelligence community. Yeah, I know. And they try to look for. They always lie. And so what you have to do is you have to look past the lie and say, okay, what's who's doing the lying? Who's doing the telling here? And if it's the intelligence community, I almost always go with the opposite. The only time a scandal, the only time you ever see a political scandal on the television is that means that the agencies let that happen. Their job is to protect the president. It somehow benefits them. To ex- if it benefits them to expose it, they'll expose it. If it benefits them to hide it, they'll hide it. And disinformation, that's all part of the disinformation uh, program. And to be fair, when Trump was getting the Mar-a-Lago stuff was going on and they had a picture of all those files that were scattered on the ground and you could tell they, they were secret files because on the top of the front one that they took a picture of, it said in bold lettering in red, top secret on it. Where I was like, that looks like the most staged photo. Now, I'm not saying denying that he didn't take files. I'm not saying that at all. But what Does I'm our saying intelligence is- community stage anything? Go look at that photo that incriminated Lee Harvey Oswald after the assassination. Made it on the Life magazine cover. Completely fake. It's a bogus photo. Well, let me get okay. to let me get to the other point, which is that it's same thing happened with Biden. What I'm saying is it's not just a Republican thing. It's not just a Democrat. No, thing. you're right. You're if right. You, if you get to a point where the agencies are obviously being clear examples that they're protecting someone or they're attacking someone, they just go full into trying to get rid of that person. They did the same thing with if you want to say Trump, that they also did the same thing with Biden. I don't think Biden. I don't I don't like him either. Either of them. But the fact that you start seeing files found in garage by Corvette and it was on Biden, I was like, it's the intelligence agencies. They obviously can't explain away all the defaults or issues with his speaking and all the stuff that's going on and lying about it and choosing not to acknowledge it is only pointing out even bigger flaws. So let's just talk about a scandal with him. Johnson, probably the same thing. Kennedy, the same thing. Yeah, well, the difference is with Trump or Carter or JFK, or Nixon, yeah, you could you could use that information like files or whatever to try to get rid of them, smear them, or, or make him look bad. But in the end, those presidents are strong enough to stand up to you, and they won't go to Vietnam. They won't they won't uh, go fight in Ukraine or, or or go fight these wars. Biden isn't. So if they have a cost benefit analysis, they're looking at well, you know, he might lose the you know he's crooked. What he's given us Ukraine? Oh my God, that's such a big, you know. So it's like, you know, for, Trump wouldn't. Trump won't give him anything, and so they're like, well, it's it's the cost benefit is we got to get rid of him. But with Biden, at least it's a it's a toss up because he's given them what they want on one hand, 
And uh, so that's well, not, what those it's four not all guys, the time you get somebody that just basically is not even alive. I mean, people speculate that Biden's dead, but um, it's because he can easily just say whatever. AI you and all because some of his speech, some of his public appearances. I, I mean, think he got a facelift because there's photos where his ears like not attached, and then it's attached, and that only happens if you get a facelift. Plus, he's a lot. I mean, he looks yeah, he more don't look the same. If you yeah. look at him like back in in his heyday in the '90s and two, the early 2000s, he doesn't look anything like what he did. He's and, and of everybody's course, getting work done. The one congresswoman I know. A, that just happened to be a grandma. She's got a boobin boobin plant. So I'm like, hey, hey, go. I, I want to see Sarah Palin back up there talking about shooting wolves from her backyard in Alaska. I'm like, God damn it. She's an American woman. I love it. <laughs> Barry, I got to wrap it. Um, where can All you right. your links, man? Standards plus history academy.com is my where I store all my content uh also you can go to my youtube channel which is also standards plus history academy um and i post about three or four week uh videos on on the jfk assassination and watergate so you can go to either one of those places my books are also on standards plus history academy.com i'll link all those in the description it's been a pleasure chatting again thanks everybody thanks, for listening to this episode of how the blank stay tuned for next episode if Zoom should stop the recording at any point, but I